If you have your Bible this morning, take it, turn to 1 Timothy. This morning we are launching out on a new uh, expositional study on the book of 1 and 2 Timothy. Now anytime you start a, uh, a project, and recently, uh, as uh, over the past year, I have had the privilege of, of watching uh, my home, as we had moved here, uh, get erected little bit by little bit, month after month, and, and day after day. And there was times where there was just this compulsion to go out and say, like, what is happening today? And, and during the early stages of that, I remember uh, uh, the, the trucks backing up and digging out various components and coming to an understanding that these footings that they were pouring were going to be an absolute necessity for the foundation and well-being of my future home. It is no different when we think about the foundation that we build when we think about studying the word of God. Foundations are critical. Jesus said this uh, in the New Testament when you look in the Gospels and Jesus said, if you build your house on the sand, it is most likely destitute to be destroyed. But if you build your house on the rock, which is Jesus Christ, it will stand firm in the storms of life. It will stand firm amidst all kinds of cultural uh, uh, aberrations and false teaching and various shifts that go on where, wherever they may come from. But if you have a good foundation, you know what that good foundation is? The only foundation is Jesus Christ. And how do we know about Jesus Christ and how can we trust in the content and the body of information that we understand about him? This becomes our sole authority and our foundation. And let me just tell you, even as we start another book, that if you're not building your foundation of your life on the very words and principles of God, I'm telling you, you're building it on the sand. This is the only sure foundation, the only sure authority, the only sure sufficient word of God that is there for you to be reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness. If you come with that presupposition and understanding and belief and faith and in awe of the all-inspired word of God, it is at that point that we have the basis together to come and learn the words that have been breathed out by the, very, uh, by the very Spirit of God. And today, as we look at 1 Timothy, I would beg you, as we do when we, when we start any book of the Bible, that we are going to lay some foundational principles on how to study this book successfully so that we, as Bible students, come and submit ourselves to the very text of Scripture, so that when we see things that are hard for us to see or hear things that are hard for us to hear, that we don't just, get, we don't just end up with a conclusion. Well, they're just a bunch of old dead people that wrote, and that, what does that mean to me? This letter wasn't written to me, it was written to someone else. No. Believers, this book may have been written to a particular group and to a particular audience, but its byproduct through inspiration providentially intersects with our life in such a way that we can leave changed people. More sure of a foundation and we can proclaim the very thing that Peter proclaimed in Matthew 16 that David just read. 
that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and upon this, he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Believers, do you believe that? There's something transformative about the very church that Jesus Christ came to sacrifice for. And if we honestly don't believe that, that God was in the midst of this, there's something wrong, and we just attend hoping that something will happen instead of having an assurance of faith that if we follow his commands and his direction, we can find that we will be a light, a city set on a hill. People whose lives are not shaken as the, as the waves that would be crashed in, as James said, that come in the midst of our life. It's a critical component to study God's word, and I hope as we come together, if, the, if you are new to the chapel, that you, uh, this is a delight for you as we study the word of God together, and we learn, and you are taught how to read your Bible. So often in a culture uh, that we live in, even among uh, uh, evangelical Christians, you will realize that so many of them do not really know how to read their Bible. They know that the content is good, and they believe that it's authority, and they believe in its sufficiency, but when they come to the Bible, they're just simply looking for something, and they're perhaps maybe asking all the wrong questions. And the goal of any Bible student it's to study God's word accurately. And there, there are critical components for us to do that. Think about the life of, 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 of the apostle Paul for a moment as he now embarks on writing what we understand as the pastoral epistle to 1 Timothy. There is a group of writings, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus that fall under this, uh, this category of pastoral letters. There are a number of different epistles, and don't get thrown off by the word epistle, which simply just means it's a letter that is written to a particular group. And in this case, 1 Timothy, as well as Titus, now in our, in our English translations, in most modern translations, you will see the order of the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. But in its historical setting, Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment, in which he then wrote... 1 Timothy, and likely Titus. We're unsure whether Titus came first or Timothy, 1 Timothy came first. And then later on, during Paul's uh, another Roman imprisonment, he writes 2 Timothy. So in all reality, if, if we could maybe alter the book, it would be 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy, or you could switch it around. But that was the context by which Paul and the time frame that Paul was writing this book. He came out and he was desirous to go and be with this church. And to now in this letter, you can notice it, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into this, that Paul was writing to a particular person. Now we'll notice this main theme as we think about laying a good foundation uh, as we think about the study of this book. And we have said your key theme and our key theme for the book as a whole is that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Perhaps some of your translations, uh, if you read an ESV translation like mine, uh, perhaps some others say the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It is that foundational stone of which a, a pillar would set on in a way that then could be, beauty could be displayed. 
But I have often thought over the course of, of ministry, how many Christians all of a sudden look at the church at some point in their Christian journey and use the church as kind of a, t I can just kind of take it or leave it. They can kind of just, if it happens to fit into my schedule or if I happen to wake up early enough or if, if someone happens to in, invite me or, you know, they'll, they'll move all across the country and never ask themselves the question, what church am I gonna go to? What spiritual diet will I have from a person and from a group and an accountability of a, of a member of, a, of the household of God? So often we play so flippant and loose with the value of the church that we fail to see that, that, Jesus, that Paul described this and Jesus described the church as the place where hell cannot prevail against it. Therefore, when he, he put the church as the pillar and the ground of the truth, you can trust what goes on if the church is following the scripture. I've been around long enough also to recognize that there are many churches out there that play flippant and play loose with their handling of the word of God in such a way that it becomes mostly about smoke and lights and about what they can do to impress people and what they can do to entertain people as they come. And people will often, I've heard people say this, like, eh, they'll visit a church and they'll say, so what did you think? Uh, I don't know, they just didn't seem to, like it just didn't feel the way that I was expecting church to feel. See, church is not about, or its intention, is not primarily about how you feel. Church is primarily about what we can know. And the body of truth that, it, that the, the church proclaims in the authoritative, inspired word of God is all about what we can know for sure. And watch the news. Talk to people who are living their life, who are watching people pass away, they long for a sense of security, but can never figure out in an unbelieving culture, they cannot put their finger on why things seem so unstable. Why can't we just have peace? Is because so much of the world is looking for peace in all the wrong direction, from all the wrong source of information thinking that peace will be a byproduct of what they believe to be true. And Christian, let me tell you, it, it does not matter what I think to be true. It matters what God says to be true. And if we don't proclaim what God says, then we are for sure going to be led in a different direction. And the church is this this element that God has designed in such a way in our culture for this age at this time to be that city set on a hill, to make sure that your light is not having a basket placed over it, that you can surely tell people and evangelize them and be confident to say, this narrow road you see will lead you to life. And this wide road will only lead you to destruction and the only way to get to heaven will be to follow in the path that Jesus laid down for us in the very scriptures for you and I to follow. Well, what is our key verse as we 
look at this. Uh, allow yourself to turn to, to 1 Timothy chapter 3 for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15. Because epistles are occasional letters, we have to remind ourselves what is the point of what Paul is trying to say. And it's embodied in this particular statement in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15. Here's what it says. Follow with me. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, there's something about the occasion from which Paul writes to Timothy that he knew that Timothy needed a strengthening and encouragement to continue to pastor in a way that would bring honor and glory to God. Well, what that tells me is we're not alone in our, in our culture today. Thousands and thousands of years later, we have churches that claim a level of spiritual authority that are, that are leading people away from the truth to some kind of so sociological, self-help-driven mentality of their version of the truth. That Jesus is good as long as he helps you feel a certain way. Can I just tell you, if you repent of your sins and you humble yourself in the sight of God and you trust in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, in the scriptures alone, can I tell you, it will change how you feel. If you're here and it hasn't changed and something isn't, do you remember that moment? Something changed about how you felt, but that feeling was driven by the facts of the Bible, not just you and I waking up desiring to feel different. Feelings are so often alluring where truth is foundational. Feelings change, but truth never changes. And the more that we come to that understanding as we study any book of the Bible, we will then have a good foundation to begin to, to study it in a way that will lead us, uh, lead us to that end so that God is glorified. Now this morning, I want to touch on four elements for laying a good foundation as we start our study of, of 1 Timothy. Now, uh, I want you to take your Bibles because these books are so closely knit together, and I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Because as you study any book, and maybe this is the first book of the Bible that you're, you're now coming to the chapel and studying, what you will realize is that there is, it, is, it is of significant importance to us that we handle the word of God appropriately. Notice this text in 2 Timothy 2, 15. He's saying to Timothy at a later time, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who is rightly handling the word of truth. In the course of all of the shift in location and building a new house, I don't know if you've ever done this, but there's a unique experience uh, to be had in trying to change your address at the, US, at the United States Postal Service. It's quite unique. You can go in there many, many times and you realize there's all kinds of things that have to go on behind the scenes just for you to receive one piece of mail at your new location. Now, over the course of time, perhaps all of you have used uh, you know, various components of UPS delivery and FedEx and Amazon Prime, 
and you, you perhaps have received a package and you knew that it was coming and there was some level of, uh, of, of fragility to it. And so what they do when they ship these is they stick on that sticker that says, handle with care. And then other big stickers around it that says, this is fragile. I had all kinds of boxes like that that I became aware of that I actually owned possessions after I got them out of my garage. And some of them we labeled in big letters, fragile. And yet during the course of the move, as I grabbed those fragile boxes, it looked like they had been treated with some lesser sense of fragility. And I would open it up and think, what happened here? So often when we think about handling the Bible, we say that we, it's important for us to rightly divide the word of truth and to handle it with care and precision and accuracy, and yet so often, as people give advice and counsel to people and declare the very words of God, they often don't treat the word of God with such careful precision, and it's almost as if they're going and handing a, a, a mangled up box that has stickers all over it that says, handle with care, this is fragile. Believers, How you handle the text of scripture is paramount to your and my Christian walk. If I make them say or mean whatever I want them to mean, I will not get at what God wants it, understand what God says it means so that I can eventually understand it, what it means for me. We must handle the word of God with care. This idea of rightly handling the word of truth is in some sense, the the original word for this is to analyze it correctly or in another way to describe it in the original language, a word picture that is often associated with this is that you guide it along a straight path. If you're into construction or building, it's almost as if you, you, you put that penciled line and whatever you do to go cut, you are doing whatever you can to stay focused on cutting on that line. And that is exactly the picture that we're supposed to have as we embark on studying a book of the Bible. Handle with care. Be precise. Don't start conversations, even evangelistically, and, and say things like, well, here's what I believe. Here's what, here's what you believe, but here's what I believe. You know, in all honesty, no one cares what you believe unless what you believe is on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. So certainly have the conversation evangelistically, but please say, this is what the Bible says. No, this is not what the Bible will make you feel like. No, here's what it says, and here's what you and I have to do about it. It is so critical for us to help teach people the truth. Why is that? Because here at the chapel, you'll see in our doctrinal statement, if you've, if you've come and become a member here, and if you're not, uh, we, have a, we have a starting point class going to be coming up soon, and I would encourage you, be part of the pillar and ground of the truth here at the chapel in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. There is something valuable about belonging to a place that is is seeking to handle the word of God with care. We believe, and you'll hear these words or read these in our statement, we believe in the verbal, plenary, inspiration of the word of God. Verbal is kind of easy to figure out, right? Every single word of the truth matters. We believe in that here. 
There is not one sense, one pronoun, one particular uh, component of the very words breathed out by God that doesn't matter to us. And plenary inspiration means that in its totality, everything the Bible says in its pages is absolutely and totally true. And if it is totally true, it means it's totally authoritative. And if it's authoritative, guess what? It's sufficient. And if it's sufficient, it gives Paul a reason to write Timothy and say, don't stop proclaiming this truth. Your life and hundreds of Christians' lives depend on the accuracy of the verbal plenary inspiration of the very words of God that can then come to us through the pages of scripture that have been providentially preserved by the Almighty so that when we open our Bibles, we can be confident that what we are reading is the very words God intended for us so that we might be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he has for us in there. So anytime we open up the Bible and open up the pages of Scripture, it is the duty of the Christian to make sure that we handle them with care and handle them with accuracy, to cut in a straight line, to interpret according to certain principles so that we can understand what God intended to say to us. I love what one particular writer said in a book on the study of Bible interpretation. Listen to what he says. He says, the big problem with Bible study today is that we think that it should just be easy. It should be easier than other things we do. We study recipes for quality meals, how-to books for all kinds of things, carpentry, plumbing, automobile maintenance, and so on. And we, we, we read vociferously for our hobbies. What do we think the Bible, why do we think the Bible is the only subject we should not have to study? and take some amount of effort. You know what, I really truly believe this. Christian people should have on their, on their bookshelves commentaries and study books to help you handle the word of God well. Don't look at that and say, well, no, no, I'm not in seminary. Or I'm not gonna be a Sunday school teacher. No, but you're a Christian. Christians love theology. Christians love what the Bible says about anything it happens to say anything about. And if you and I don't have the luxury or shouldn't have the luxury to say, I'm interested in this, I'm interested in this, not so much this, so I just don't need that. The Bible is full of, of, of rich truth for you and I to grab hold of. Don't think that this will be easy. It will take effort from you and I. We have to adhere to interpreting the Bible from a sense of right interpretational methods, which means if the Bible is verbally inspired, you would expect that grammar would be included in how we look at the Bible. And some of the English people and people who love words and language, I don't think I ever really fully got an appreciation for language or the English language or grammar until I was forced to, when, when I was in, in, uh, in, in theological studies, learning Hebrew and Greek, going, oh, that's how the English language works. I needed another language to force me to understand my own language. 
And through interpretation of the Bible, grammar and language and words matter. Why is this so critical? Because often in the original text of scripture, in the original languages, they, they use words differently and sentence structures differently. We're so fixated on subject, verb, object, but the original language was not so fixated on those things. They used words that would shift up to the front for the sake of emphasis so that as we look at them, we can say, oh, God really wanted us to know something about that. God uses in his providence language. Language doesn't come separately in and of itself. All language is interpreted in the midst of a context. I am so readily re re uh, reminded of this every time I teach uh, at the seminary that I teach at, and, and there I am teaching on Zoom, and I have a Canadian student, and a student from Kenya, and a student from Zambia, and a student from South Africa, and an American student, and we say one thing, and then I realize my African students are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Because for them, in their culture, they don't have the same idioms, they don't have the same uh, language components. There's barriers that happen. It's challenging for us, and this is why it's hard work to study the Bible. Because this is not our culture. So we have to begin to understand the culture and the setting so that we can interpret in a way that is contextually consistent with the way God has designed language to be understood. You think, well, that's what I expect you to do for me, pastor. I commit to do it for you when you come here. But you've got to commit to do that for you when you're doing your devotions. I promise to be faithful to that kind of interpretational method while I am expounding the word of God, and so have our teachers, and so have our Sunday school teachers. This is why it's so valuable to get your children in these settings because they're being taught not only a Christian worldview, they are being taught how to study the very words of God in its accuracy so that they can know how to live and to be like Christ and to be transformed. So critical for us when all of a sudden, in, in any given culture, when you look back at the first century culture, there's so many things that create a distance between us and that, and that first century reader, like family, religious communities, synagogues, pagan idolatry, and centers of worship. And all of a sudden, so often, in epistolary letters, you understand Paul's driving at something, but we, we fail to see the context from which that instruction is, is, is being birthed out of. There's always a challenge of interpretation. Here's one of the challenges that occur when we think about element number one, this contextual uh, interpretation. We often get to a point where we want to study the Bible, but we start all in the wrong place or ask all the wrong question. I would beg you, don't start here. Because in order to find the meaning of a text, a student of the Bible must not begin with themselves and ask this question. Well, what does the text say to me? Oh, a lot of erroneous and heretical perspectives have arrived in small groups as a result of that small question. Well, what does it mean to you? Is that what we're all after? So we go out of a, of a small group of whatever it is, and I was joking with my small group that you thought you joined a small group, but which is not so small. 
Is it all of a sudden now 15 to 20 meanings? Or 15 to 20 people searching after one particular meaning that God intended? Don't start with yourself. That's never a good place to start. Start with God and ask the question, which is appropriate in Bible study. What did the original author intend to the original audience? If you don't, and if I don't ask that question, I am not driven back to history and context and language, and I can even proclaim that I believe in a verbal plenary inspiration and yet really never anchor the way that I do Bible interpretation to the way to the way it should be. God intended for a meaning to take place, and that meaning, this is what we call interpretation. Interpretation is the explanation of a meaning. But meaning in and of itself will only occur when we know what the original author intended to the original audience. And that's a challenging thing if you've studied the Bible. Sometimes you don't have as many indicators that suffice your mind to say, I wish I would have known. I wish Paul would tell me. I mean, have you ever studied the Bible and thought that? Can't you just explain a little bit more? But Paul has all these little one-liners that you go like, what? Tell me more. And he just moves on. We have to be satisfied with the extent to which God's word tells us more or less about any given thing so that we don't get tempted to say, you know what? He doesn't say this, but you know, we're not trying to pull Paul. You know, Jesus said this, but I say unto you, don't do that. We're not inspired. The scripture itself is inspired. Inspiration leads us to the product, not the person. The product of inspir- is, is what we're talking about. The Bible is the product of inspiration. It's so critical for us because we must ask that question in order for us to understand what it means. One particular uh, hermeneutical individual, uh, two of them, by the way, in in a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, lays down this basic rule, which I think is very helpful for us as students of the Bible. A text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author or his or her readers. It first has to mean something to them before it can mean something to you and I, okay? Very basic principle. Now, it seems so basic, but we often run ahead of this because we say we don't dive into the study that gives us a right interpretational view. Well, why is this critical? Well, look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 for a moment. Just gaze at the, at the ty- of the section titles that occur even above verse number three. Most often our Bibles will have these titles as a helpful resource to us. Warnings against false teachers. Well, in what context? In what scenario? To which people? We have to understand something about that culture and what they were after and what they're trying to lead people astray from so that we're rightly handling the word of truth. We, we move down and you think of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and he gives us a section on praying for all kinds of people. Why is that significant for us? And what kind of leadership existed? And what kind of empire or, or political structure was set in place during the time of Paul's writing? It forces us to say, if they... What did that mean to these people? And how hard would it have been, by the way, uh, just shortly after 1 Timothy and Titus were written, when Nero comes to power and you were to hear this idea of this crazed, lunatic Roman empire, and then you hear an inspired author, the apostle Paul say, and pray for your leaders. 
Like, I remember having somebody uh, after a, a very unique political season and in a small group setting said, can you pray for our leaders? Think specifically of, of, of our leadership structure here. And the person said, I, I, I'm not doing that. I, ca I can't do that. I won't do that. They are not of my persuasion. There's something about the scripture that drives us to say, what does God mean when he says to pray for people in this kind of way? And what happens in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and you look down at verse number 9, and it says things like this, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Like all of a sudden we have to begin to understand what modesty looks like in a culture like ours. Do you know how often I've, I've heard the concept, the, the cultural connotation, that modesty is culturally dependent? Whatever, whatever I think is modest, what does that mean to be modest as a woman? All of these things come to us and we say, what did that mean to these ladies? What was going on in that church? How can we understand it? And then he comes to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and, he look, and we look at uh, verse number 12 in chapter 2 and we have these statements like, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. This is interesting. This is always often brought up. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So how do we look at that? How do we, how do we look at their first century culture and say, what is going on there? Or should we be influenced more by a, by, by a culture that has a historical component to it that had a feminist movement? Or do we interpret it in light of what happened here or do we interpret it in light of what was going on there? See, all of these interpretational questions come into play uh, in all of these areas so that all of a sudden we know what it means for a woman to be silent and to not exercise authority over a man. And it's not to say all of a sudden that if you're in a small group and a woman decides to speak that some guy goes, hey, shh. You have no theological content that we want to hear. Do you realize that as an image bearer of the living God, he has called men and women to be theologians. Everybody lives with a theology. It is not gender specific, which means we want women with good theology impacting the culture and dynamic of the church so that we have women who are grounded in the truth, discipling, caring, training up a next generation of women to be theologically sound. And in the context of the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. What do we think about things when we come to 1 Timothy 3 and all of a sudden he's explaining the kind of elders you should have and the kind of deacons you should have. And, and what do we know, what do we think about in the first century context when he says there's a mystery of godliness that's supposed to happen. What is he after with that? How do we understand, it? how do you get on? And this is going to be for our widows. How do you figure out how to get on the widow list? You realize 1 Timothy talks about this. Don't accept them that are not on the list. And then accept those who are on the list. What's going on with the list? It begs us to ask the question of the original recipients in their original context. What did Paul mean by that? And it is only then that we can figure out what it means to us 
and where the bridge transfers us to understand how, what that, uh, how that applies to the culture that we live in. It is so significant for us to handle the very words of God accurately and precise. Think of this element number two. Any, any person who studies the Bible needs to recognize its context, but also needs to recognize its author. Now, you're going to think this is the fastest point I've ever gone over because I'm done. Because Pastor Ben is coming next week, and he's going to talk to us about 1 Timothy 1 and 2. Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will then unfold who this author is. Why does it matter? Why is this significant for these individuals at that time? Why is it significant that Paul said it among all people who could say it? Why is it that when Paul says it, he seems to have such accuracy in understanding what's going on in that church. Ben's going to cover that. He'll cover the idea of not only who the author was, but also understanding the audience. No context historically would be complete in Bible interpretation unless we understood who the people were. Ben's going to talk to us a little bit, a little bit about who is Timothy and why does Paul describe him the way he describes him? And is that, is that helpful to us in any way to see Paul's affectionate disposition to this person who he loved so dearly that he would take time as he was released from the first Roman imprisonment to write a letter to this man who was pastoring this church? So critical and in 1 Timothy, what we understand is the pastoral epistles are defined by being written a letter that is written to an individual, not just to a church. And yet when you understand who it was written to, and in this case, Timothy, which is really not argued among most theologians, would really understand, it's pretty sure when you can come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says his name, and Paul says his name, so there's no controversy in most, in pretty much the predominant circles of evangelicalism to say, this is an inspired book, okay? But he's gonna, but, but to know who Timothy was is critical, and not only that, but Timothy was a pastor of a church. And he was not just a pastor of any church, he was a pastor of a particular church in which Paul gave significant amounts of time to. Do you notice this in 1 Timothy chapter 1? And Ben will work back through this. Just notice the phrase, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Very particular. When you study the Bible, ancient letters had a very uh, a particular component. They had an opening, a salutation, and a body of the text, and they would work down to some kind of concluding remarks. If you, see, if you studied any sense of ancient literature, you would understand that the biblical authors often followed the same kind of structure. And as we walk through that, we can begin to understand, if I interpret the Bible rightly, I can find out who it was, where the setting was. Now I can go back in history and I can say, what does history say about this, this place? What does history say about this church? And that becomes critical as a foundational element to understand the audience. I mean, could, I, I am so... Uh, uh, you know, appreciate the reality of any speaker who speaks publicly to recognize audience matters. 
If I use an illustration and coming from the north in Minnesota, the good majority of my life, and I am in South Africa, and I am talking about snow, and they're looking at me with the most puzzled look, snow, white, what? And they can't figure out what I'm saying. I need to use a different illustration so that they can connect with what the scripture means in its context so that we can figure out how how this is transferable for them to understand what God intended them to know. It's critical for us in this audience. Think about the audience of the Ephesian church. Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus. Paul went on to Macedonia. You can see that in Acts 28. He's released. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to stay behind. He calls him to pastor the, the Ephesian church. And, when, and I, I would encourage you to do this because I can't spend the extensive amount of time that I would love to be able to spend with you going back over in the book of Acts, starting from uh, chapter 19, 20, and, and realizing all the events that occurred in in around the the context of the Ephesian church. I mean, just think of a few for a moment. These are found in Acts 19. Go back this week and start looking through the book of Acts to prepare your mind for what Paul's gonna talk to Timothy about because there's a direct correlation to what what Paul said there to what he's writing to him later on. Paul arrives in Ephesus and 12 men are converted in the first seven verses of Acts 19. After this conversion, Paul then enters into the synagogue in which it declares in Acts 19.8 that he, he spent three months reasoning with the Jews. Now notice, you have another context of history to deal with. Synagogue? What? Why is he going there first? These things should trigger flags in your mind to go, well, that's interesting. What's he doing in the synagogue and why would he go there first? Because the Bible answered those particular questions as Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles. It kind of is a conundrum. You're the apostle to the Gentiles, and yet, why are you starting in the synagogue? You're supposed to be with the Gentiles. All these men are converted. He spends three months investing and trying to reason from the scriptures with the Jews. Isn't this interesting in Acts 19.8? He's reasoning with them about the kingdom of God. Because the conundrum of the Jewish faith was wrapped up in the Messiah had just died and the kingdom wasn't going to be set up. And Paul, from the Jewish perspective, was coming and saying, I got to explain this. And he's preaching still the kingdom of God. Because they thought the Messiah who was to come was going to set up his kingdom. And yet there was a delay. And we're studying that in our small groups if you haven't been part of one. You can get in on the kingdom parables and understand what's going on and why he would be preaching about the kingdom still, even after Jesus' ascension. Notice these other scenarios that are fascinating in the, in the life of the Ephesian church that all of a sudden, not only then when the Jews re, in, in stubborn rebellion decided we don't want anything about the way which was the words that they used to describe the content of the gospel or followers of Jesus, they would call this. And most of your translations in Acts will use a capital letter when it, when it says the way to describe the content of the gospel. 
He's confirming it through all kinds of miracles. Wouldn't it have been amazing to be, to be part of that initial component of the Ephesian church where in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 to 17, all of a sudden it says people were grabbing handkerchiefs that had touched Paul and aprons that were on him and they were being healed in droves of people? I mean, don't think that all of a sudden, you know, this was going on in isolation. And Ephesian, in Ephesus was a fairly large community. A very strategic place. And all of a sudden, the confirmation of the gospel was coming through miracles. And, and now uh, Paul recognizes that all of this was going on. All of a sudden, the, the seven sons of, of Sceva come out, who are these Jewish magicians who are trying to cast out uh, different demonic things that were going on in the lives of people. And they say, uh, they, they do it. They don't believe in Jesus, but they use Jesus' name because they saw Paul was working through this. And they said, in the name of the Jesus that Paul Describes And they said to him, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who in the world are you? And all of a sudden, they turn on these seven sons and leave him running out of the house naked. Isn't that interesting? I know you're thinking it. Because I'm thinking it when I'm reading it. What an interesting sight. I mean, I don't know how many people running after him with some kind of cloth cover up. But all of this was happening in the life of the Ephesian church. Timothy was there with him. He understood the context of, and, and all of a sudden, when, when, the, when, when, the, when, the gold, when the ironsmiths came together and they were creating, all of a sudden these little, uh, you know, statues of the great god Artemis, and they said, if... The, the gospel was being so effective in the city of Ephesus that all of a sudden, these group of individuals who were, who were building these little small uh, statues saying, we're gonna go out of business. Does it tell you something about the church being the pillar and ground of the truth? This gospel that we embrace is community transformative. It can change whole communities because of the power of the gospel. And these guys come together and all of a sudden the riot starts to happening and all of a sudden for hours on end, they start just yelling, great is the God, uh, goddess Artemis. And they just yell and yell and yell. This is the context, this riot happens. And all of a sudden in Acts 20, you're given this picture of the, of the, of the elders that Paul had called to the Ephesian church and he is just giving them this, this what is often understood as the Ephesian elders address and he's saying to them, I ministered to you, not just in public. I cared so much about you that my ministry extended from house to house to house. Now, what a model of the way that we think about community and sanctification. It's not just about what we do on Sunday. It's getting in each other's lives in a way that from house to house to house that we are embarking on a life that is consistent with the authority of the truth. He calls the elders together in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and he says this statement, be, pay careful attention to the flock, which is the church of God. In Acts chapter 20, 29, he says, be careful, there are gonna be wolves that will arise. Notice this in the Ephesian address to the elders. There will be wolves who come about from within you 
So when we get to 1 Timothy and we think to ourselves, false teaching is going on, and Paul's addressing this to Timothy, guess what? Some of this false teaching was happening from within, not from without. They were having stuff bombarding them from without, but they were having stuff bombarding them from within. And we'll ask the questions interpretively. What was that, and what can we understand those circumstances to be? He says to them, he says to Timothy and to the Ephesian elders, Remember, your ministry is to build up the saints. Paul loved the Ephesian church. We would do well when we study the book of 1 Timothy to get acclimated to the culture and context of Ephesus and who they were and what the Bible says. And you don't get this in all the books of the Bible, by the way, that all of a sudden you have of, of three pretty good-sized chapters devoted to the church at Ephesus beginning, and then an entire book of the Bible written to the church at Ephesus, and another book of the Bible written to the pastor at Ephesus. You think of the, context of the, the, the content that is included just for this church. God has something to say in his address to Timothy, because he, Paul, loved the Ephesian believers at this church and and significantly invested time and energy for the sake of the gospel. You know what it screams out to me? Paul loved the Ephesian church, and he loved the churches. Do you love the church? Do you sacrifice for the church? Do you commit to yourself that you're going to be a student of the Bible and understand not only interpretation, but interpreting the Bible in a way that you can understand what God says? But I can't force you to love the church. You You can't say this, I love the Bible, but I don't love the church. You must love the church. I tell my students all the time when I teach a class on the local church, like you want to get one thing that will fire me up, it's looking out and seeing the body of Christ do what the body of Christ is supposed to do. There's something about it that just fires you up. Watching people evangelize, watching people disciple, watching people care for each other, watching children go back into a room and get taught a Christian worldview. Going down to a parenting class this morning and, seeing, and being with parents and go, the Bible matters for our parenting in every single facet of our lives. So critical for us when we think about understanding this. And of course, we need to understand the aim. And this is where 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15 comes. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says. Well, why is Paul even able to come to him? Because he was just released from his first Roman imprisonment. His hope was that he wouldn't be in prison again and that he would be able to come to Timothy and to the Ephesian church in which he invested so heavily in. And that if by chance he would be delayed, according to these verses, that you, that Timothy, would know how the church is supposed to behave in the, house, in the household of God. Notice this, which is the church of the living God. Believers, this is not our church. This is his church. The elders of this church are only under shepherds to the real shepherd, Jesus Christ. It is the duty of your elders and all the members of the congregation put together to make sure that we pay attention of how to function in the household of God. Why is this important? Because it's the church of the living God. 
I don't want him coming back in Ephesians 5, and he is expecting to see a sanctified bride, which is the mystery of the church, and he comes, and we're all just doing whatever we want. This, believers, is the church of the living God. It is culturally transformative. You experience here what you'll never experience in our culture. Love, truth, authority, relationships based on truth. You can never find that anywhere else other than the church. The church of the living God, the one who is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. What we hold and bring in our hands every single Sunday is critical that we open it up and we look in and we say, what does this mean? What does God want us to know? Believers, it is unmistakable that Paul had a love for church and for theology because he knew that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I want to read this in closing. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Out of all the things that, that we get about the Ephesian church, we get a beginning and we, and we get a sense of, of the Apostle John on the island of Patmos reading this statement in Revelation chapter 2 to the Ephesian church, and I believe it's instructive as we start. Notice this statement. Follow along. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers, I will grant to the eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let us never forget, as we study this book, that doctrinally rich congregations may love and practice many things accurately. They may even stand up for the truth and endure persecution and even not grow weary in the process. But if that doctrinally rich congregation loves their good works more than remembering the love of God that drew them from their total depravity into a rich relationship through the Son, the God of heaven reserves the right to shut down and snuff out the light of any local church who fails to adhere to the authority that God gives in the word of God and to we are called to look at areas where we can do better to make sure that we are loving the God who saved us and following his principles. And, and the revelation addressed to the Ephesian church simply calls us to remember, don't get arrogant because you might know things about the Bible. 
Do you love the God of the Bible? If you love him, then you want to know everything he has to say to you, which will, will, will force you and compel you to be a good student of the Bible. So that in case God decides to delay, as Paul perhaps could have delayed to the, to the to 1 Timothy and to the Ephesian church, that if God decides to tarry, Long after all of us are dead and gone, we will have trained and matured a community of believers to live according to these principles because they know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these words that that you give to us in the context of the Ephesian church and the life of the pastor, Timothy, who's working diligently as a young pastor to retain doctrinal integrity, to lead a group of people and a congregation to appreciate the very words that were breathed out by God. Lord, give us that appreciation through the work of your Spirit. Help us study the Bible well so that we can know what it is you want us to know so that we can then be what you want us to be. But we can't do that on our own. Please help us, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.